in other countries uh, and in the U.S. history. There have been cases where a majority, a short-lived majority, has jury-rigged its uh, its uh, electoral system in such a way that they can't lose. Uh, and even if there's a popular majority against their policies and against their candidates. Hello and welcome to the Miami Law Explainer, a new podcast from the University of Miami School of Law. At The Explainer, we take a deep dive into the news of the day, unpacking Supreme Court cases and decisions, sussing out hot political and social issues, and discussing legal matters that are just too interesting to ignore. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Going into the 2018 midterm elections, an initiative on the Florida ballot would automatically restore voting rights for people with prior felony convictions upon completion of their sentences. Currently, those disenfranchised voters must wait as many as seven years to request to have the restoration of their rights be considered. Last month, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights issued a damning report showing that federal actions to enforce voting rights for minorities have declined sharply since the Supreme Court struck down the core of the 1965 Voting Rights Act five years ago. Joining us today are two brilliant professors. Charlton Copeland is the M. Manette Massey Chair in Law and writes about federalism and the Supreme Court's voting rights rulings, as well as the rise of voter fraud as a dimension of racial backlash. Gregory Coger is a political scientist at the College of Arts and Sciences and author of books on filibustering in Congress and legislative parties with Matthew Lebo. Gregory also blogs at Mischiefs of Faction on Vox.com. We've got a lot of ground to cover from geographical sorting and voter ID laws to the 2013 Holder decision. Let's go to Miami Law Explainer producer Catherine Skip with the conversation. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. I can't wait to wade in to all things November. Where do we start? The Voting Rights Act and Holder? Sure. Uh, Let's start with the Voting Rights Act. Um, First enacted in 1965 as uh, a way for the federal government to finally and conclusively ensure that everyone can vote, especially African-Americans in the southern states where they've been disenfranchised for over a century. Um, The Voting Rights Act initially uh, lasted for five years. It was reauthorized in 1970, 1975, 1982, uh, and then most recently in 2006. And generally, of course, it was was meant to guarantee that, that everyone can vote. A critical part for this discussion is the pre-clearance section of uh, the Voting Rights Act, which said that any municipality or state which has a history of discrimination or bias uh, must get the approval of the Justice Department for changes in law or practice which could affect the uh, ability of of different racial groups to vote. and that was critical to making sure that the s- southern states in particular did not try to get around the new law, the new 1965 law, by enacting different voting restrictions, which had not been addressed by the law. So um, it put an end to the manipulation and uh, attempts to uh, come up with new ways to, re- to retain the status quo. Now, if we think about um, Holder uh, and, and, and Holder is heralded as um, a case that uh, essentially invalidated uh, on federalism grounds um, 
those preclearance uh, procedures uh, and forced the federal government essentially to take uh, jurisdictions to court uh, to battle against uh, changes in voting uh, rules that were deemed to be potentially discriminatory. Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in as we think about the, the Voting Rights Act uh, is the fact that in an earlier case, uh, in, in a case involving the Austin Municipal Utility District, uh, decided, I think, in about 2009, the Supreme Court seemed to hint that it had some constitutional reservations about the preclearance uh, formula or the coverage formula, excuse me, uh, and, the, and, the, and the subsequent preclearance procedures. Uh, nevertheless, um, a, a Democratic Congress didn't, didn't respond. And so one of the things that I think is, is really interesting with, when we think about the Voting Rights Act and, and Voting Rights Act politics and the politics around it, um, in, in some sense, is the way in which the, the contemporary political parties uh, seem to be paralyzed, both in a, a, a kind of legislative fix uh, pre-holder and in a legislative response post-holder that, that hasn't uh, answered the Supreme Court's concerns um, in, in an effective way. Right. So there's a whole different podcast series that could address the question, why does Congress fail to legislate? Uh, but long story short, I mean, it's supposed to be the first branch of government, but in especially over the last decade, has struggled to legislate effectively on major policy issues. So when this case came down in 2009, Congress at the time was was um, controlled by majorities uh, of the Democratic Party in both the House and Senate, uh, and of course had Barack Obama as a Democratic president. But w what they were focused on was trying to pass um, major health care reform, and then once that was done, to work to move on to uh, financial reform, which became the Dodd Frank Law, uh, and then hopefully after that to enact um, uh, climate change legislation, which never happened. Um, and in theory, Congress has different uh, committees and lots of different members, and they can multitask. It's an organization set up to multitask, but um, faced with a court decision, which might have motivated wise legislators to uh, rewrite a section of the Voting Rights Act, I think they were inclined to say, oh, come on, man, we we just redid this law in 2006. It's supposed to last for 25 years, and we shouldn't have to talk about it again right now. And we're busy with our, you know, two or three other things. So we don't have the time, and especially we don't have the energy to get back into the, the politics of race and equality um, when we're trying to pass these major laws. Um, last thing. And then in, in 2010, the uh, Republicans took over the House of Representatives, that is, they gained a majority. And after that, it would have been extremely difficult to do a rewrite, a voluntary rewrite of the Voting Rights Act uh, in the short term. I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, I think one of the other things I, I might add, in, in some sense, going back to, to Holder, uh, is in part, um, in the oral argument in, in Holder, uh, Chief Justice Roberts asked uh, then so Solicitor General uh, uh, Don Varelli, he says, do you know whether or not, now I'm paraphrasing, he says, do you know whether or not the um, voting participation is larger in Mississippi or in Massachusetts. Uh, and in some sense, 
what Chief Justice Roberts was getting at is this notion that the South is forever a set of bad actors in the voting rights discourse and the North uh, is for every set of, of non-bad actors, right? And, and, um, and, and I think the politics that, that, that Greg speaks of is a politics that in some sense, the Democrats were not willing to, to sort of pick up and, 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 and try to enlarge the, the canvas of potentially bad actors, right? To include states like Ohio, to, to interrogate Massachusetts. And in some sense, right, when we think about when we think about the, the sorts of critiques that that uh, uh, Chief, uh, the Chief Justice Roberts and that Justice Scalia uh, also kind of put to uh, the attorneys during oral argument and Holder, it was this question about a kind of regionalized politics. Would the South be marked as this bad actor forever? And, 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 and as Greg says, right, they had just decided that they were going to extend the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. And the question was, particularly after uh, Barack Obama had won three southern states um, and had come fairly close in, in states like Georgia, could, could that narrative be sustained, right? And could that narrative be sustained over a kind of democratic politics that said, we'd rather do, um, we'd rather do something else. We'd rather talk about other, other issues. And so it in, it in some sense fed into a narrative that... Um, that that there was a that there was a different kind of politics at play in failing to address the Voting Rights Act issues. So, Charles, could you walk me through Shelby County uh, v. Holder really quickly? So, there's this county in Alabama that says, uh, "Hey, we'd like to impose a voting restriction." I can't remember what, uh, and we shouldn't have to get the approval of the Justice Department anymore because our our racist past is long behind us. So this is an interesting case because essentially this is the argument that um, states like South Carolina, which brought the, the original challenge to the Voting Rights Act, had made as early as 1965. Um, except, right, as Greg says, uh, Alabama says we're not that state anymore. Right. We we recognize the legitimacy of the Voting Rights Act. We recognize the legitimacy of prior Supreme Court jurisprudence on on this uh, uh, statute. Um, we are not that place anymore. And the 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 times have changed. We have changed. And again, um, th there the, the, the Supreme Court, again, in that case, both reaching back to. Uh, a kind of revived federalism jurisprudence that that had come through the the, the Rehnquist Court, uh, on the one hand, in which uh, the Supreme Court had taken great pains to to look over Congress's shoulder to say, "Did you dot your eyes and cross your t's with respect to imposing uh, restrictions on state governments?" Um, coupled with uh, again the election of Barack Obama and the, the the sort of sense that yes, indeed. If if Florida and Virginia and North Carolina could could vote for an African-American presidential candidate, it certainly suggested that something significant had changed. Um, if uh, the, the the significant numbers of new voters, I think the, the 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 estimates are that about eight million additional voters, many of them uh, uh, racial and ethnic minorities, um, were added to the rolls during the 08 and the, the lead up to the 08 presidential election, right? There was a sense that, hey, maybe there's no real problem here. And, and again, that tenor um, 
rings rings uh, repeatedly in the Supreme Court's case law. One of the things that I think, though, is also connected to um, the decision in Holder is, in fact, the rise of the voter ID uh, laws. And, and, and I'll say a little bit about that. So prior to Holder, the Supreme Court had actually upheld the use of voter ID laws in Indiana. Right. And so you you have voter ID laws that have been sanctioned by the Supreme Court in a case called Crawford versus Marion uh, County Board of Elections, um, in which uh, Justice Stevens uh, writes the writes the opinion um, who uh, and, 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 and the court there uh, basically said that it was a kind of rational decision to, to, to tamp out uh, alleged voter fraud. Uh, despite the fact that Indiana could not point to um, a single case of voter or in-person voter fraud that had actually taken place, right? The Supreme Court uh, and the Seventh Circuit uh, affirmed the state's authority to do that. In fact, then creating, in some sense, this two-tiered system, right? That 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 voter ID laws were being enacted in non-Southern states, right? In Indiana, while uh, states like Georgia, states like Alabama, states like Texas would have to come back to the uh, the Justice Department to get pre-cleared for the very same uh, statutes and regulations that had basically been affirmed by the Supreme Court in previous cases. So, so I think that there's a, there was an interesting convergence um, in earlier cases and in and in narratives about voter fraud. Um, uh, uh, on, on, on the ID side and in a kind of federalism case law that had been germinating in the Supreme Court, you know, for basically the last two decades um, that, that converged sort of nicely in, in Holder or by the time Holder gets decided. Let's, uh, that leads us right into voter suppression. Uh, can we kind of talk a little about like where we are now on both the push and the push back? Well, there's many different kinds of voter suppression. Um, let's, let's start with voter ID laws. Um, as Charlton has noted, I mean, a lot of southern states, now that they've been freed up by Shelby County v. Holder, have imposed their own voter ID laws. Um, I'm most familiar with the case in North Carolina, in which a, uh, the state legislature imposed a voter ID law, and subsequently a court case uh, against that law found out that, that when the legislature was writing the law, they they solicited inf information about the racial impact of different kinds of voter ID and then consciously chose the ones which would have the greatest effect upon minimizing the ability of African-Americans to vote in the state of North Carolina. Um, so, I mean, part, as, as Charlton says, part of the logic of, of um, Shelby County was that uh, – it sure seems as if we don't have a racial problem in America anymore because, look, uh, Democrats are comp competitive in a lot of these southern states. African-American voting participation has has um, now reached a level of equaling uh, white, non-Latino voting participation. So one way to look at that is that uh, racism just isn't a problem in America anymore, and so we don't need this law, or at least we don't need the preclearance. Another way to read that set of facts is that the Voting Rights Act had been a smashing success and getting rid of it could have disastrous consequences. And we are living um, 
in that latter world in which, yes, a lot of states have enacted voter ID laws and they are having a detrimental effect upon the ability of, of citizens to vote. If we think about the fight leading up to what we know as the motor voter law that was enacted in 1993 uh, during the, the uh, uh, President Clinton's administration. And what's the motor voter the law? The motor please? voter law was a law intended to um, increase um, political participation through, by the citizenry by, by uh, making it easier for, for citizens to register to vote. And, and essentially, they could register to vote at any number of um, government sites, including uh, departments of motor vehicles, but also, uh, uh, I think, you know, sort of public welfare offices and the like. The, the, the narrative, and the narrative didn't start there, but, but, but the narrative certainly gained some, some, some strength that making it easier to register to vote would increase the likelihood of voter fraud, right? And, and, and the, the, that legislation had been pushed in the first Bush administration, but wasn't successful until until Clinton comes to office, right? And so you get the motor voter law. The, the, again, as as early as the '80s, there are people writing about um, and writing uh, in racialized ways about um, the the sort of street money that is walking around in minority communities in Virginia uh, when when um, Doug Wilder was elected governor of Virginia or in Philadelphia. Uh, during mayoral races, right, and, and sort of um, uh, allegations that the NAACP were, was paying people in crack cocaine to, to register um, folks to, to vote, right? And so the narrative was in, in, in many ways sort of racialized by, by people who were writing uh, books and, and who were connected to, to conservative think tanks and who were connected to, to conservative sort of uh, causes, right, like the Federalist Society. If, if you look back, at some of the Federalist Society's national conventions, the list of people who are speaking about voter fraud is a list of a who's who of people who end up in the second Bush administration. And they're there with people who end up in the Bush Justice Department. Right. And so the, the narrative of voter fraud gains some real legitimacy uh, in, in those years. Uh, again, in the response to the debacle of, of the 2000 election in Florida and the Help America Vote Act that was subsequently enacted, again, sort of these themes about voter fraud. And again, the, the sort of geographic specificity that voter fraud would take place in places like Milwaukee and Philadelphia and St. Louis, right, goes back to this question of a certain kind of racialization of um, voter fraud in the in the sort of in the minds of the, the wider American public. Uh, and so Right. This this. And, and again, even in the, the, the Supreme Court's case that affirmed voter fraud. Right. Justice Stevens sort of picks up on this this theme of uh, the possibility of in-person voter fraud as a justification for why states. That kind of fraud, is that what's behind the um, amendment for the fel felon voter rights? I mean, is that the fear that, oh, these terrible people are going to be out voting? Well, there are some. So 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 some instances of voter fraud have, in fact, been traced back to felons voting. Right. Meaning felons who thought they could vote after they had been released from prison. Right. And so the some of the, the fewest examples or the few examples that actually came up when we when when the when when the studies came out to sort of canvas the, the legitimacy of these allegations, they did come up 
that felons who, who again, thought they could vote and had registered to vote had actually voted um, contrary to the, to the law, right? And so, uh, but, but I, I, I think those two things are, 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 are separate. Another way in which uh, uh, voter ID laws have been racialized, or the, the, the notion of voter fraud has been racialized, is the fear that uh, uh, non-citizens, uh, immigrants, might have participated in, in the voting. Um, so after the 2016 election, President Trump uh, famously suggested, without facts, that uh, 3 million people had voted uh, for Hillary Clinton illegally. That, of course, was a lie. Um, but it was a lie that he took seriously. And so he formed a voter commission, uh, voting commission soon after he was uh, sworn in as president, headed by Chris Kobach, uh, the, then the attorney general of the state of Kansas. Kobach had been one of the four, has been one of the foremost advocates for voter ID laws and cracking down on voter fraud. Um, the commission soon collapsed, uh, but he was still the attorney general of Kansas, now running for governor. And he had a chance to make his case in a court of law. There was a challenge against the voter ID laws uh, in the state of Kansas. And um, Kobach himself took on this case and argued it in court. He brought in his outside experts and the argument was completely disproven. The judge rejected it and that was the best chance for voter ID advocates to make their case. And it was, it was flatly rejected because there just isn't any substance behind the argument that there is massive voter fraud, that there's a ma major problem of in-person uh, voter fraud that needs to be solved with voter ID laws. Some of the voting rights changes that had been made in states like Georgia, uh, I think maybe in 2005, um, the staff attorneys at the DOJ in the voting rights section um, rejected those changes. And those changes uh, were, and those recommendations were overturned by uh, the political appointees within the DOJ, right? And so the, the, the bureaucratization of the Voting Rights Act, even pre-holder, was not um, immune to a certain kind of um, manipulation, right? That, and, and so when, when we talk about um, a kind of important moment that the post-holder world represents because it forces the federal government to litigate these questions um, it, rather than uh, have a, a bureaucratic mechanism to stop them, those bureaucratic mechanisms only work where the folks within the DOJ um, want them to work. Now, again, one of the things that that we saw in the in the first Bush administration, right, one, the big controversy around the firing of uh, United States attorneys was not unrelated to their refusal in some of these places to bring voter fraud cases. Um, and 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 right the 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 inspector general's report sort of said i think at least in in new mexico and in missouri there was some real concern among uh certain partisans that voter fraud was not being prosecuted vigorously um and 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 so right we we again the politics of this is is, is important but to again to go back to your question about um felon uh disenfranchisement uh 
restrictions. Um, again, right? The 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 like good lawyers, the first route that folks took was to try to get this thing to to court, right? To 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 litigate these questions um, uh, up to the Supreme Court, and the courts have simply not responded in the way that that I think uh, opponents of 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 restrictions on felon voting had hoped. Uh, and so it spurred this this real grassroots political activity, um, particularly here in the state of Florida, with, res with respect to an attempt to, to amend the Florida Constitution um, uh, in, in ways that 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 may have some some significant and lasting impact with respect to the Florida electorate. While we're talking about the judiciary and, and how it's moving the needle, is this a good place to swerve into uh, the last Supreme Court session where we had a gerrymandering case and a, a voter purging case? Of course. Uh, there, were, there were actually multiple gerrymandering cases before the Supreme Court. Um, the states of Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, had highly partisan well, pro-Republican gerrymanders. The state of Maryland had a highly Democratic gerrymander. Um, and so taking those cases together, the court had an opportunity to f make a declaration about whether or not partisan gerrymandering per se uh, is um, unconstitutional or whether there are, there's a, like a limit that they're willing to, to draw. And the short answer is no, that they they did not agree upon any particular standard uh, for identifying, you know, how how partisan is too partisan when it comes to gerrymandering. But but on some level, like the voter uh, franchisement sort of question, uh, the states and the politics at the state level have been fairly interesting. One, you've seen some state Supreme Courts right throw out. Um, uh, uh, legislative districts, right? In Pennsylvania, it was a, 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 a huge uh, issue. Um, some states uh, have also moved in the direction of uh, creating um, nonpartisan gerrymandering sort of boards, right? To, to, uh, to, 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 to engage in the project of um, uh, drawing legislative districts. And so we, we, we've, we've seen these, these, these sort of false starts through the federal courts and responses both by state courts on the one hand and the state political uh, process to respond to the absence of a kind of federal remedy for some of those questions. Yeah. In the state of Pennsylvania, for example, the court challenge uh, was just within the, the state courts uh, use, utilizing a provision in the Pennsylvania state constitution. So that gerrymander has already been overturned, and there's a whole new set of districts that will be in play in the 2018 election. And uh, Democrats will probably pick up multiple seats just from the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, in North Carolina, there has been a federal court challenge to redistricting uh, focused on um, – but, but just exercising like the, the Voting Rights Act ban on racial gerrymanders. Uh, and – I mean, it was, <laughs> the defense of the majority of the legislature was we weren't trying to disenfranchise African-Americans. We were just being completely partisan um, by minimizing the influence of Democrats. And it just so happens that African-Americans in our state are overwhelmingly Democrats. So our goal wasn't to minimize the representation of Af African-Americans per se, but only in their role as Democrats. 
that didn't work. And the um, voter purging case, we're going to talk about that. So uh, again, right, this case, um, uh, Husted versus uh, the A. Philip Randolph uh, Institute came out of Ohio and o Ohio's um, attempt to, to purge its voter rolls, right? And so there is this, the states argue, look, we're caught in this catch-22, right? Um, the Help America Vote Act requires the states to keep accurate voting rolls, right? And so they have to kind of keep these accurate voting rolls. And the state says, therein lies our obligation to, um, to remove um, folks from the voting rolls who who haven't moved or who haven't responded to certain uh, attempts by the state to kind of make sure they, they still live where they once lived and are continued uh, con and continue to be eligible to vote. Right. Um, and on the other hand, right, this 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 question about whether or not these actions are, in fact, um, sort of racially discriminatory and, and, and have a, a dampening effect on on people's ability to participate in the franchise. Again, the Supreme Court divided five to four uh, this this most recent term um, on right, not constitutional grounds, but kind of statutory grounds under the again, the Help America Vote Act. Um, saying that that basically what Ohio was doing was 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 uh, consistent with that that statute. Right. And um, and affirmed. Uh, right. The procedures by which the state had gone about identifying those who had who, who would be eligible for 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 purge uh, on, on the state voting rolls. Um, and again, uh, you know, commentators have 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 noted that. Um, voter purges are used disproportionately in states that were formerly covered under the Voting Rights Act, right? And so, um, again, this is a kind of post-Holder world. Um, again, despite the fact that, as Greg said, the Holder Court says, ah, you know, no bad actors, people have, states have changed, um, we, we we see that again a disproportionate use of voter purging in in those same supposedly changed states. Great, we're about a month out. Uh, how are all of these things going to impact the the midterms? Well, in the short run, um, it appears as though uh, the the initiative four will pass in Florida. Uh, it's currently polling around. 70, 74%, um, and it needs a 60% majority in order to amend the Florida Constitution. Uh, so that seems likely to succeed. It is, I mean, it, it has an interesting bipartisan coalition behind it. So not just, you know, advocates for African Americans being able to vote, um, but also the, the Koch brothers, um, because there's just a broad range of people and groups across society who think that felons need a chance, deserve a chance at redemption and to rejoin society and, and recognizing that if ex-felons are able to vote, it, it helps bring them back into society on, on equal terms. This is, um, that this is a, a promising, uh, occurrence in, in, in part because Florida is, is probably, um, the most restrictive on, on, on this issue, but also because I think that um, when, 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 when you see things like this happen, um, I do think that there's a regional effect, right? I, I think that 
changes that seem to be happening in Alabama, in some sense, became the basis for a kind of rhetorical move here in Florida, right? That, hey, are you going to, Florida, let, let uh, Alabama uh, get there before, um, before you do? And, and in some sense, right, um, it's one thing for, for a non-Southeastern state to sort of do something like this. I think it's another for a state in the Southeast, a state as large as, 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 uh, as Florida, um, you know, what might redound from, 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 from what we, what we, I think, uh, think will be a, a an important, uh, uh, victory in, in November. I, I, I'm, I'm interested in sort of thinking about what, what happens from there. And then nationally looking at all of these changes and gerrymandering, voting purges and the things that are ongoing, do you think we're on the way to a clean election, Russian bots notwithstanding? I mean, I, I think that there will be distortions in the 2018 election. I mean, at the very least, um, if you look at the, the elections for the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, right now it's projected that the Democrats are likely to gain a majority, but that it, it'll take, you know, they'll have to win the national popular vote for the U.S. House by 6 to 8% just to get that majority. So as a party, they are disadvantaged by the current system of, of congressional districts. And that's not just a function of gerrymandering. That is the deliberate strategic drawing of lines in state capitals. It's also a function of the fact that we, we represent, we draw our, our basis of representation geographically and the Democrats are clustered in cities. And so even with nonpartisan commissions, even with, you know, the fairest, open-minded legislators you can, you can find, um, any system of single-member districts is going to under, underestimate the, uh, the Democrats' share of the U.S. House. So, I mean, I do think that we'll have a reasonably fair election, but there will be distortions in the process based on the, the accumulated inequalities that, that um, need to be eradicated and have not yet been eradicated. I, I think what, what Greg says is, 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 is absolutely right. And it raises, it raises the second potential battleground. Um, and it's, I shouldn't say the second, cause we're actually there. Um, the census, right? The, this question about how do we configure who gets counted because ultimately we know that we're drawing districts on the basis of those numbers, right? And so um, we are already now fighting about the ways in which we count and the impacts that that will have on the, or disproportionately have on one party as against another party, right? And so. Um, you know, just as, as soon as we think we, we've got one sort of distorting mechanism kind of straightened out, you know, we find ways to go back to a, to a, a, another sort of input factor and, and, and find ways to manipulate that. And, and so we, we, we're going to see fights about the census. It, just broadly, I mean, this is a case where I think Congress does need to pass a law to clean up our national election system. Um, there's a lot of concern in, you know, in the U.S. since the 2016 election about the, f the future of American democracy, because we look around the world and we see it is possible for democracies to fail. 
They can, I mean, they, they keep on going through the motions of having elections, but they can, in other countries uh, and in the U.S. history, there have been cases where a majority, a short-lived majority, has jury-rigged its uh, its uh, electoral system in such a way that they can't lose. Uh, and even if there's a popular majority against their policies and against their candidates, and um, I mean, I think national legislation is required to restore a system in which everybody has an equal chance to participate and everyone has an equal chance to win an election. Great. Any final thoughts? I think that those are those are big thoughts. And so I'm going to I'm going to let those be the final thoughts. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Hopefully we'll get back together after the election and look at it again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Explainer. Let us know on Twitter or Facebook how we're doing and who you'd like to hear from on an upcoming show. Next week, we'll be with Tamara Rice-Lave, whose scholarship focuses on sexual misconduct and social policy. We will be unboxing the Kavanaugh nomination process. I'm your host, Annette Uguez, and we'll be back with you soon with another episode featuring legal news you can sink your ears into. Today's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Graduate Maritime Law Program. The unique one-year degree partners Miami Law with UM's Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science, exploring international law of the sea, admiralty law, and marine and environmental law and policy.